0: Welcome to this Niche audiocast. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche. Today, you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen to it on the go. You can find all of the resources that are mentioned here and the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz insights. Enjoy all right everyone you've all waited long enough so i'm going to go ahead and get us started as more people are coming in so welcome and first of all i do want to apologize again for the technical craziness that we experienced earlier today and i thank everyone who still made it for bearing with us um we've got things up and running now and we're ready to go and if you were able to join because of the new time even better we're happy to have you So if we have not connected previously, I'm Angela Brown, I'm the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for K-12 at NICHE. And in our webinar today, I'll be going over five insights from our 2021 parent survey with some key takeaways for each one. Before we get started, I want to cover a few housekeeping items that always come up as questions. So first we are recording the webinar and we'll be sharing that with you over email tomorrow. When you receive that email, make sure you check the links inside because that is where you will find the link to the webinar recording page, which will have both the recording and any additional resources that come up during our conversation today. So sometimes we'll have things that come up in the Q&A that I end up mentioning. And then if there are links, we'll be dropping those in on that page as well. The email will also include a link to a podcast version of this webinar. So if you wanna listen to it on the go or share it with a colleague, you can do it in that format as well. As you have questions today, you can enter those in the box in your GoToWebinar console, which typically loads at the right side of your screen, and I'll be covering those at the very end. And then finally, if you have a question about your niche profile or the niche platform, please send me an email so I can connect you with the right person to give you some one-on-one support. For the purposes of this session, we're gonna focus on questions that relate to the survey. Now, before we get into our insights, here's a bit of background on the survey. So this was the second year that we ran this survey. And here you can see our goals for the survey, um, the timeframe that we had it open to parents. We had a nice bump in responses from 2020, um, so up to a little over 2,000 families um, versus a little over 500 in 2020. And the results were segmented into preschool, K-8 and high school, which we'll focus on in this webinar and college, which was in a separate program. If you have not had the opportunity to do it yet, you can check out the full results and analysis for each age group on the Enrollment Insights blog with the link that's in the bottom right of your screen. Um, But today we're gonna look at five key things that we observed across the PK-12 spectrum and in some cases how things have changed since 2020. So on to our insights, with the first one being that the consideration window for families with older children shrunk last year. So in 2020, parents looking for preschools had the shortest cycle in terms of when they started searching for schools um, in advance of enrolling, enrolling, and high school parents had the longest. In the 2021 survey, the percentage of preschool families who started looking for schools six months or less before their children enrolled declined a little bit to 45%. It was flat for K to eight, but for parents looking for high schools, we actually saw an increase of more than 10% for families who started looking for schools six months or less before their children enrolled. So you can interpret this um, a couple of ways. Um, first, fewer families in the high school age range were on a longer decision cycle when it came to searching for schools. And second, this also points to a decline in loyalty among these families to their current schools, which we've seen the last couple of years. There's a lot of movement among families. So families are willing to make a change if they believe their child's current school is falling short in an area that is important to them. And we'll, we'll get to what some of those factors are in another section. Um, but first, we're going to take a look at consideration timeframes by age group, starting with preschool. So here you can see that 45% that I mentioned who started searching for schools six months or less before their children enrolled. We also saw an increase in the percentage of families who started looking a year or more out from enrollment, from 13% to 21, so there's quite a range there. So this is an age group where it's important to be both really responsive to families who are looking in that shorter time period and to have a plan for driving awareness in your local market for those families who are starting to search very early. If you're working in a preschool or you're in a school that serves multiple age groups, including a preschool, you also want to have some strategies in place for nurturing the families who need some time to make a school decision. Here with our K-8 to families, we see that similar to 2020, nearly half of respondents started searching for schools six months or less before their children enrolled. And then 21% of families started looking a year or more out from enrollment. So what this tells us is that similar to preschools, there's a need to have plans for driving awareness and conversions among families who are searching for schools over longer time periods. And then coming back to high school where we saw that big change, we see the 42% of families who didn't start looking for schools until six months or less before they enrolled and 20% started their school searches a year or more out. So here's what to do with all of this information. Across the board, there are opportunities for schools to use awareness tactics like inbound marketing, digital advertising, and school search platforms to optimize their visibility among families that are in different timelines for looking for schools. But that also means that you wanna run those campaigns year round, as opposed to during a specific cycle that you might have in mind. If your school serves high school age students and you haven't already, it's also time to embrace the mentality of always on enrollment. And what that basically means is even if you have a traditional admission cycle that begins and ends at specific times, the process is becoming increasingly fluid for families. So you want to be prepared for that, even if your school's at capacity. Um, In that spirit, don't be surprised if you see some interest from families in the next few months who haven't been on your radar yet. Um, So you want to be prepared to engage them as well. Um, Private schools have gotten pretty good at this because they've been seeing a lot of demand the last couple of cycles, but any school that has a formal admissions process with a set enrollment capacity and a set deadline, you want to make sure that you have a plan for communicating with families who enter your funnel late. Um, and that can be as simple as just being clear about whether or not you have space and in which grades you have space on your website, front load that information, um, and in your marketing messages. If there's no room for a family at a given point in time, you don't want to alienate that family. So in addition to adding them to a weight pool, you could offer to connect them with a school that might be able to meet their needs sooner, even though that sounds kind of weird. Um, the idea of <laughs> Referring someone to a peer school might feel a little funky, but ultimately we're here to help, right? That's our role. And if that's what help looks like at this time, it's a good thing to do. Um, You also want to develop a separate plan for nurturing families that you can't accommodate right away, but you might be able to at some point in the future because you never know. And families are going to remember the schools that treated them well and were responsive while they were going through the process, even if they didn't have space for them at some point in time. And now to insight number two. So even though local schools were a big factor in where families chose to live, consideration for traditional public schools, so non-charters, because charter schools are having a very different experience, which we'll get to, um, declined in 2021. So given national enrollment trends for traditional public schools during the past couple of years, this was not a complete surprise, but there were some noticeable differences that showed up in the survey, especially in K-8. to um, so we'll get into that, but first we're going to take a look at local school consideration. And here you can see that for the majority of families across age groups, local schools played a huge role in their decisions about where to live, with it being a little bit less of a factor for families with older students. But as we look at data regarding public school consideration on the next side, we see that traditional public schools, so again, not, non-charters. They're losing traction among the types of schools that families are considering in the search process. This slide shows how traditional public school consideration changed across age groups from our 2020 survey, and you can see that the biggest decline happened in K-8. We also asked families whether they considered traditional public schools exclusively in the search process, and the K-8 group is where we saw the biggest change. So for that group, only 5% of families considered public schools exclusively compared to 12% in 2020, so it's a pretty big dip in the last year. On the next few slides, we're going to take a look at the types of schools that families considered beyond traditional public schools, starting with the preschool age group. So there is still some good news on the public school front because traditional public schools were still pretty big contenders for both consideration and choice. The overarching point is that for most traditional public schools, family consideration and enrollment are not things to be taken for granted anymore. So here you can see the breakdown of the three types, uh, the top three types of preschools families considered beyond traditional public schools. And there were non-religious privates, religious privates and Montessori's and two of these categories showed significant increases from 2020. One change we saw across the board was that while religious private schools were the top school type families considered among non-public school options in the 2020 survey, non-religious schools were much more popular going into the fall of 2021. And in the K-12 age range in general, charter schools were more popular than both. So a lot of the narratives that we've heard about the explosive growth that's been happening with charters in the last year, we're seeing that in this survey as well. In the K-8 to age group, we provided a few more options for families to choose from, which were age appropriate, and there was a significant increase in charter school consideration from 2020. Um, And then interest in both religious and non-religious private schools also increased a bit from the previous year of the survey. And then finally, with high school, we can see that charter schools and private schools were also very popular for this age group, with religious private schools seeing a little bit of a dip, but still staying in the top three. So while this is largely good news for private schools and charter schools, administrators at traditional public schools and districts should definitely take note of what we're seeing here. I also wanna mention that homeschooling is something to watch across segments. In this survey, 10% of high school families and 13% of K-8 to families also considered homeschooling um, in their search and consideration process coming into this fall. I would also say that private schools that serve middle-income families in particular should keep an eye on emerging competition from charters because in a lot of areas, they can have some similar experiences that they offer to families, but without the tuition. So we'll see in the next section that for K-12 families, tuition was the most important factor for considering schools, but if they can find what they're looking for in a school that has a minimal impact on their household budget, especially right now, they're likely to choose that option. So that's something to take into consideration. So schools that charge tuition, I would expand the scope of the types of institutions that you might view as peers and competitors and really lean into messaging that shows differentiation and value to prospective families. Our third insight is that educational disruption is causing families to reevaluate what they're looking for from schools. And that's something that I think makes a lot of sense within the context of some of the news stories and and other things that we're hearing about how parents are viewing school now and their involvement in school. So even though we've all heard that the way parents are thinking about their children's education is changing, for the survey, we wanted to really dig into how that was happening and what families were looking for from their children's schools going into a third year impacted by the pandemic. So in this section, we're going to look at the factors that influenced families' decisions coming into the fall of 2021. So with preschool, we're going to see the start of a recurring theme for each age group, which is that class sizes and teacher qualifications became extremely important after a much bigger focus on safety in 2020. Tuition costs, distance from home, and the school's hours and schedule were important, but not the most important, so families in this age group are willing to travel and pay for the right school if their child can benefit from high-quality teachers and more individualized attention. If you reviewed the full survey results on the Enrollment Insights blog, you probably saw that we separated K-6 to from 7th and 8th for this question because There can often be some nuanced differences in what families of students for these age groups are looking for in schools because the middle school grades, that's where parents start to think ahead a little bit to things like targeted athletics and fine arts offerings. And that's also where opportunities open up a little bit more for students, whether they're looking at traditional middle schools or schools that serve a wider range of age groups. So there's a little bit of a tweak here. So with K to six, We see that, once again, class sizes and teacher qualifications are most important, followed by a school's ranking, but we also see that social-emotional development ranks very high, which was a new addition to the survey this year. And I found this to be particularly interesting because social-emotional learning, or SEL, has become a very controversial topic in the public school space in recent weeks, Um, So keep in mind, this was earlier in the fall, but this is something that we'll be kind of keeping an eye on going into next year. That disconnect was definitely interesting between what families were looking for and some of what we're hearing in the news. And then here for seventh and eighth grade families, they had very similar top priorities with social emotional development coming in in the top three for parents in this age group. In K-8 to more broadly, it looks like after a year of remote and hybrid learning for most families, their priorities have definitely changed from more academic rigor and physical safety to opportunities for individualized instruction and social-emotional development. One thing I also want to point out for schools to watch, and you'll see this in our write-ups on the blog, is diversity. So diversity of a school's student and staff population was important to 40% of seventh and eighth grade parents and 45% of K-6. to So what we're finding is that the younger the parents are, the more important this is. So that's something to keep an eye on as these younger generations of families are, are coming up the ranks. And then finally, with high school, we see a similar pattern with some differences that align with what parents are focused on at this point in time, and that's college. So teacher qualifications and class sizes are still at the top, but they're followed by school rankings and AP opportunities. So there's definitely more of a pure academics focus for this age group, but across all three segments, we saw that safety went from being the most important factor across the board. So it was at the very top in all three age groups last year. falling more in the middle of the list of priorities. And for this survey, we also divided safety between COVID-19 protocols and campus security because we thought it was important to be a little bit more specific about that distinction. So as children are coming back to their classrooms and families are becoming a bit more comfortable with being out and about, which I'm sure we're all seeing in our communities, their areas of focus have definitely changed to really wanting to ensure that their children are supported by strong teachers in smaller environments and that there are some efforts in place to help them to navigate some of these social emotional challenges that a lot of students are having as we continue through the pandemic. And we'll come back to that part in a little bit. So as we look at how schools can use this insight, once again, this isn't new, but your teachers are your greatest asset and they can be an equalizer among schools of different types with different resources, facilities, etc. From a marketing standpoint, it's a good time to do some things that you might have put on the back burner, like having teacher profiles on your website or incorporating teacher features into your social media, but highlighting the strength of your teachers is a must now. It's no longer a nice-to-have, and I know that that can be a lot of work, especially if you work in a large school. I've definitely been there, but Families wanna know who these people are and they wanna know why they're great at what they do and why they love what they do. Um, Another thing I wanna mention is that profiles are another way that you can show off your school's brand and what differentiates you from other schools. So don't be afraid to have some fun with the questions that you ask or um, the way that you present the, the profiles visually. It doesn't necessarily have to read like a traditional resume. You can actually have some fun with it. And then for public schools and districts, individual profiles are a heavier lift, I fully acknowledge that. So at a minimum, have images to accompany teacher contact information in your directories so that families can at least put some faces to names. Um, You can also use your website, social channels and newsletters to highlight teachers who are doing really great work with students. And this can also be a way to say thank you to people who are going above and beyond, and in a small way, at least can help with some of the recruitment and retention challenges that schools are dealing with at the moment and then, with this last tip, um, we love proof points around here, <laughs> um, but I, I I'll get to that in a second i I do want to really emphasize the importance of going beyond small class sizes because that is a bullet that lots and lots of people um, like to include on their websites. But families need to see that in action. So you have to show them how specifically your children or your students are benefiting from more individualized attention and personalized instruction. And I would say, The same is true for things that fall under that umbrella of social emotional learning and development. So even though that terminology is a little controversial in some sectors, parents universally want their children to feel safe and supported when they're not at home. So if your school is doing work in something like mindfulness or having yoga classes for students or having programming for older students to help them balance competing demands between their classes and extracurriculars, anything that can speak to intentional efforts to support students well-being or stories that you want to tell you just have to do it in a way that meets your community where it is we talk about um, you know meeting our students where they are and you have to meet your community where it is as well that means that there are some schools that will be able to lean into messages that others can't at this time but it's also helpful for parents to see what these things look like in practice within the context of your community And then coming down to proof points, um, I'm a big believer in these and having those third-party endorsements. So if you have testimonials or reviews from your current parents or students or teachers that can speak to the individualized attention or the rock stars that you have working in your buildings, please use them. And if you don't, definitely work on gathering that content from members of your community so that you can put it to use. So our fourth insight is that mental health and social emotional challenges are rising to the top as a pandemic issue for families, especially in high school. So the social emotional piece continues to get more interesting, and we'll be watching this one next year to see um, how or if this changes. Um, In addition to adding a question about social emotional development among the factors that were important to families as they researched schools last year, We also incorporated this topic into a question about how the pandemic has impacted their families. So in the last section, we saw that the social emotional development piece has emerged as a key factor in the school search consideration process. And we also found this to be a key challenge for families in the last year, especially in the high school age group, which had the highest percentage of families who said they experienced mental health or social emotional challenges with their children. So here you can see that the older the children, the bigger the challenge. And this lines up fairly closely with how social emotional development was rated as a factor of importance to families earlier in the survey. Um, In addition to some broader statistical data around the impact of COVID-19 on student mental health. So we'll be interested in seeing how this one changes next year after many children have had opportunities to return to more normal routines. But in the meantime, this is something worth taking note of at this point in time. So what does this mean for school marketers, admissions professionals, other administrators? As I mentioned in the previous section, if your school has formal programming around social emotional well-being or a strong counseling program for students, and that's mental health, not college, that's a whole <laughs> other thing, um, that's a really great point of emphasis for your marketing messages. And this is both a retention and recruitment opportunity because Current and prospective families need to know how their schools are tackling this issue and supporting their students. Your school also has the opportunity to be a thought leader and a resource. So if you have a mental health counselor on staff, partner with them to do programming around timely student mental health issues that you can offer to current and prospective families as a webinar or a live event, depending on what the protocols are for your community at this time. You can also ask them to share resources with you that you can include in your school's parent newsletter on a recurring basis, um, or that you can incorporate into communications flows with prospective families. But all of this is to say that this is an area that has the potential to become a signature program for some schools and the ones that do it well and promote it well will definitely stand out, especially for older students who are really going to need the tools to get through social or social, emotional, and mental health challenges as they go on to college or whatever the next step might be for them. And then our final insight is a continuation of what we saw from parents who shared the impact that COVID 19 has had on their educational decisions. And this was in response to a question about the effectiveness of their child or children's learning environment, which we also asked last year. So in 2020, the not surprisingly, the biggest challenge across age groups was difficulty with online learning. That was the top issue across the board. And this year, with more students returning to in-person instruction, we saw a change. So preschool families continued to struggle with online learning, which was interesting, but K to eight and high school families shared different challenges that point to a little bit of a mixed return to in-person instruction. So we'll take a look at that here. So for K to eight, we see that a high percentage of students were learning in person with a much smaller percentage learning in a hybrid format. And so even though remote education was the only thing that was rated as ineffective in 2020, in 2021, 7% of families with children who were learning fully in person and 2% of families with children who were learning in a hybrid format rated their child's current learning environment to be ineffective. For high school, 83% of students were learning fully in person, while 8% were learning in a hybrid format. And similar to K to 8, in 2020, only remote education was rated as ineffective, but in 2021, six percent of families with children learning fully in person and three percent of children or families with children learning in a hybrid format said that their child's current learning environment was ineffective so the takeaway here is that even though most students are back in school normalcy as we all know is still very aspirational for us Um, the delta variant threw everybody for a loop and ever since schools doors reopened families have been dealing with quarantines, staffing shortages, technology issues, there are no bus drivers, lunch items are missing, the list just keeps going and going and going, right? And at the the end of the day, all they want is normalcy. Like we thought we were gonna get there, we haven't yet. So even though these aren't huge numbers, there is an indication that there's a little bit of room room for improvement as students return to on-site classrooms and schools navigate ways to bridge online and in-person instruction and deal with some of these challenges that I know you have no control over. Um, So if your school has found creative solutions for connecting in-person and hybrid or pause students, or if you're just doing an exceptional job at helping your school environment to feel as normal as possible, show that off. So much has been taken away from students and families and teachers and administrators that everybody wants to hear about the things that are bringing back some semblance of normalcy. Um, and this is actually another area to lean into proof points because incorporating voices from students, parents, and teachers is it, it gives greater weight to some of the messages that that you're sharing and and putting out there. And then finally, take a big old deep breath because there's a lot going on. This is really hard for a lot of people. This is a harder year than last year. And at the end of last year, I don't think anyone believed that that things were going to get any harder or more challenging. So, as you roll with all the anxiety and intensity around you, make sure that you're taking a deep breath and taking good care of yourselves because me and Oprah want you to. Now, with that, it's time for questions. And as a reminder, you can answer your questions into the box in your GoToWebinar console, and I'll get to as many as I can before our end time in about 17 minutes. Um, if you ask a question that I can't get to, no worries. Please send me an email. My email address will be at the end of the presentation. You can also reply directly to the invites that you received. That will come straight to me and I'll be happy to answer them there. So
1: while the questions come in, we're gonna do a quick poll. And hopefully everyone can see this. Oh, good. Beautiful. So we asked this question last year,
0: and I'm very interested in seeing how things have shifted. So far, it's looking like they have. Last year, most of our respondents were similar to prior years or behind. Um, And I'll also include the responses in the
1: follow-up that you receive tomorrow. But this this is very interesting. Okay. All right, so it looks like most of our friends here
0: are ahead, congratulations, that's awesome. That also sounds about right based on what we saw with our enrollment and marketing survey. A good percentage of folks are on par with last year and a few are behind. So lots of different experiences that are are happening Um, But it looks like folks are having a pretty good year, which is great news, that's what we love to see. All right, now we're going to jump back in. And before I get to the questions in the chat, we had a couple of of questions that came in in advance um, during webinar registration. So I'll try to get through those quickly. Um, and then I'll jump into as much as I can in the chat. So the first question is what are some best practices to hone in on for preschool parents to gain interest in an instructional instructional preschool. So, first, I will start by saying that we typically shy away from terms like best or best practices, unless we're talking about rankings candidly, because what works and what doesn't can be so different between age groups. So in um, and segments and, and lots of other factors come into play. But anytime I get asked a question about generating interest in a specific um, area, I will focus on awareness tactics. So that's what we're gonna do here. So one more traditional tactic that I don't think that schools take advantage of enough is community partnerships. And that's because they get you away from a hard sell and demonstrate your connection to a community in a more passive way. So for a preschool that might look like Partnering with an organization that has a tie to your school's specific educational philosophy, or um, if you have something very specific that you do and and, um, that aligns well with a community partner, you'll definitely want to showcase that um, to host an event. Or you could do something as simple as a movie in the park, but the the goal is for families to feel comfortable and not to feel like they're being sold to, not at that stage. Um, On the digital side, things definitely become more interesting and more options open up to you, provided that you can set aside a little bit of a budget for it. So I would say there, you know, brass tacks, having a strong website and social media presence are absolutely essential. Um, And you could try experimenting with some targeted digital advertising. I'm a big fan of Google Ads because you're hitting families right where they start when they're looking at schools and that's on search engines. Um, And selfishly, niche does play a big role in that early awareness period too because of our presence in search, we have really strong SEO. Um, But you can also do a lot of targeting with Google and the added bonus there is that you're capturing a more engaged audience because these are people who are actively searching for what you have. You just wanna make sure that you have the basic mechanics in place to capture their information and to nurture them when they click on an ad. And then the next one is suggested format schedule and technology for hosting online events. So I'll break this one up because the answer to each part of this question is it depends still. Um, For format, I'll start by saying that as many of you have probably seen, trying to replicate an in-person experience virtually does not really work. So don't do that. Um, In terms of format, it really depends on the content and the goal for the event. So some schools at this point are doing pure live streaming for small in-person admissions events that are happening on campus. Um, Some are still doing live events and events with, and by live I mean happening in real time, um, or events with pre-recorded elements using tools like Google Meet and Zoom, and then everything in between. Um, So I would really go back to the purpose, the content, um, make sure that you keep the timeframe nice and tight. Typically anything over an hour is a bit much. Um, As far as the schedule goes, I would start with what a traditional in-person event looks like and think about what can be cut, what makes sense to be pre-recorded, and what should happen live. And if there's a need to facilitate some interaction, how you're going to do that, Um, whether it's with breakout rooms, polls, Um, Lots of tools offer lots of different options for that, Um, and then it's also good to bring an offline element to an event, particularly for families that are a little bit further down the path. It's not really worth it earlier in, like, the top of funnel stage, but um, for families that are further down the path in the admissions process, for example, if you're hosting, like, a virtual peer-to-peer networking coffee for parents, you could send them some coffee to brew on the day of or some tea and branded packaging you know there are some things that you can do to get creative um, to try to bridge that that online and offline experience and then as far as technology goes google meet and zoom are still the gold standards for schools just in terms of being free and accessible Um, and they've become very very similar in recent months earlier in the pandemic zoom had a lot of features that google meet didn't but they're pretty much neck and neck so I would say if your school is a Google Workspace school, um, I would use Meet, maybe I'd give them a slight edge just because of the integration with the other things you're using, but um, otherwise you you really can't go wrong with either one. Okay, so now I'm going to do my best with the many questions that
1: that have come through. Uh, Let's see here. Can you show the K-8 to
0: considerations beyond traditional public schools again? Yes, I can. And just so you all know, this is going to be shared. Um, so you will have the opportunity to take a harder look at all of these. There we go.
1: So we have charter schools, religious private schools, and non-religious private schools. And you send a copy of the presentation afterwards we absolutely will love for teachers that's beautiful it's fabulous yes please show them off
0: what ideas are schools using to develop signature programs for well-being mindfulness mindfulness training etc so that's another, it depends. but And I, I don't know that, I'm going to assume that you're talking about just events as opposed to signature programs, because I, I see wellness as sort of its own signature program. That's the umbrella. Um, but there are lots of different things that you can do that I've seen in the past, whether it's just bringing in guest speakers if you don't have resources in house, If you do, even better, and I would do those events in the same way that you would your admissions or marketing events, where um, you might have your director of counseling, if you have someone in that role, or an outside speaker that you source through your counseling office that could either do a webinar or come in for an in-person presentation, again, depending on, on the COVID protocols at your institution, Um, And what's nice about doing some of these events in an electronic format is that it gives you content. And so one of the gifts that people got from all the virtual events that were happening last year is that it gave them all this content that they could repurpose and reuse. And so whether you do that as a lead magnet, where there's, you know, it sits behind a form that someone has to fill out in exchange for information, that would be the prospective family side, or just making it available and promoting it to your current families as a resource. Um, Those are both options that I think could go a really long way to demonstrating a school's commitment to doing that work. Let's see, what else do we have here? How large was the survey pool? So earlier in the presentation, I shared that we had, I believe the exact number is 2,131 families, and that was up from 506 in 2020. How would you suggest highlighting teacher qualifications? Website information, should it be included in printed admissions information? So I'll I'll break that one apart as well. I would say for starting with your digital presence, um, I am not as excited about really basic directories, but I also understand that they are simplest. So level one, would be to have a basic, you know, sort of faculty staff directory and there are lots of different examples of what that looks like on many, many school websites, particularly independent schools. I think that's where you'll find the most fleshed out options. Um, And typically that consists of a photo, name, title, very basic contact information, depending on what your school is comfortable with. And then basic credentials, so bachelor's degree, master's degree, if if applicable, title slash department, and that's sort of it. Um, And and that would be kind of the 101 level of at least showing people who works at the school, um, who their child's teacher might be, if they're an incoming second grader, ninth grader, whatever the case might be, teacher or teachers, depending on the ages. Um, if you're a school that's doing really, really well with diversity, based on what we just saw in this survey, that could actually be a huge benefit for you. Um, if you aren't as as visibly diverse as an institution, that can be a little bit of a challenge. But I wouldn't necessarily use that as a reason not to have your teachers um, highlighted on your website. Um, the 201 level would be to have more robust bios for. Um, your faculty and staff, and again, I acknowledge that's a big job. It's a heavy lift. It's probably more of a summer project or something like that. And, and it's, I, I don't know that it would be easy to ask teachers for right now. To be completely honest with you, I know a lot of teachers are pretty overextended, so that might be something that you slowly start to build and, and plan for in terms of your of your digital presence, but gathering that information could look like just having a simple form that goes to new hires to gather some very basic information about not just their qualifications but who they are as people which i think is actually a little bit more interesting there are definitely those schools that um, where having you know highly credentialed teachers or teachers with ivy league degrees where that is important to the community and to the market Um, so, you know, that would kind of be on the admissions and marketing folks to have their fingers on the pulse of where they stand in that. Um, but if your school has a very strong brand and identity and, um, a little bit more wiggle room and is more willing to kind of take a leap and go outside of the box with those profiles, you can have more fun with questions and get a little bit more into the meat of like who these people actually are. Um, and if it's not feasible to do it with all of your teachers, maybe start with your leadership team. That's actually something that I did at my previous school where, you know, there were all kinds of technical issues and like the pandemic was happening and we knew it would be hard to ask teachers to do one more thing. So instead, we had every member of the leadership team fill out a questionnaire that was a mix of biographical information that you would typically find, but also some things that gave a little bit more of a window into who these individuals were. Um, as far as including detailed credential information and printed admissions materials, I don't think that's necessary. I would focus more on highlights. So if you have some data points that are compelling, um, whether it's you know the percentage of teachers you have who have master's degrees or um, ta- are, are subject matter experts in specific areas, you know if they worked in the field that they teach. Um, at some point, and that's something that would be compelling for prospective families. I would go more in that route and more of sort of the data point infographic um, approach as opposed to trying to get all these nitty-gritty details in an admissions piece, so hopefully that's helpful. Okay,
1: going to try to get,
0: okay, are families pushing back when schools have a home waiting period after school breaks? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> and I know that's that's hard news. Um, it's it's really difficult because I think we all know why schools are doing that. But it, it is you know to my much earlier point, I think that families are craving normalcy so much, and uh, as we're seeing in the wider world, a lot of people are kind of over COVID, and so anything that kind of forces them to revert back to that feeling of being in the early days of the pandemic where things were locked down. And there's a lot of emotion that, that people are carrying right now. And I think that's something that's really important to remember. I think that's why these social emotional challenges are bubbling up to the surface. Um, and so I would just say that if if that is the approach that your school is taking, the same things that were true a year ago are true now. So your messaging has to lead with empathy. You have to be very clear about the why behind why you're doing what you're doing. Um, And and you have to be prepared for some pushback because unfortunately that's just sort of where we are. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't stay the course and continue to do what your school's leadership has decided to do. Um, But you do have to be prepared for that because yes, families are definitely starting to push back over these quarantines and and waiting periods after school breaks i think people are just over it um which is tough that's tough for everyone okay
1: let's see So
0: one question is, I know it's important, how important reviews are for rankings, but it's such a hard time to ask families for them. Everyone is struggling and we are definitely not back to normal. Any advice? I would say, wait, honestly. Um, So even though we're big believers in rankings and reviews, I would never advocate someone to try to force something that just isn't going to work because of where your community is at at, at a certain point in time. I also think that this time of year is a hard time to ask anyone for anything, (laughs) to be completely honest. Um, There's a reason why schools don't typically do parent feedback surveys right before Thanksgiving. Um, People are running on empty and I I totally understand that. So I would say two things here. One, I think it's easier to get reviews from parents early in the year when they're still sort of excited and hopeful about what's to come. It's a lot harder as the year drags on and you're getting to a place where they're starting to carry some things with them. And I would also say it helps a lot to engage the families that are already highly engaged in a school. You know, Look to your parent volunteers. If you are a private school or an independent school, um, look to your, your donors, look to your board members, look to people who are already friendlies, so to speak, and are already committed and um, and are typically happy and engaged. That's the place to start. I'm not a big fan of sending out blanket emails asking parents for reviews because you're not gonna get the results that you need. So I would say wait until the fall um, and, and really target the right families when you're asking for, for those rankings and reviews, because you're also going to get better
1: content from them. Okay, some of these are just folks that are sharing. Okay. Okay. This is a great
0: response to the social emotional question. One person on the call has a drama group that comes in once a year to present to students about bullying and kindness. That's a great suggestion. Thank
1: you for that. Okay. All right,
0: we are were the surveys broken down into regions? Are these insights for the East Coast, New York across the states? So to the extent, I will start with the headline and this will be our last question because I see that we're, we're a little past time. Um, the overarching approach that we take with our surveys is that as we're doing our analysis, we try to look for outliers and that includes in things like income, um, race and ethnicity, regional, Um, So to the extent that we noticed regional differences, that is included in the full survey write-ups that you'll find in the Enrollment Insights blogs, but these high-level data points that I shared are things that were true across the board. Um, And so anything that you see here that was very generalized, it's generalized because we did not see noticeable differences across income, race, ethnicity, or location. So hopefully that's helpful. These are all pretty universal truths (laughs) among our parents. Um, So with that being said, thank you all so much again for joining me this afternoon. I think we had a great discussion. If you drop something into the chat, once again, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly. Um, You will be getting an email from me tomorrow that will have a recording of this presentation, the audio cast version, which is a podcast, Um, and links to the survey directly, just so that you can see the breakdowns um, and you don't have to dig for them. But I really appreciate uh, those of you who bared with us in our technical issue earlier. Um, And I can't wait to see you at the next one. Have a great afternoon.